Many do not realize the Bible has quite a lot to say about the earth, the animal kingdom, and their close connection to humanity. In this video, we will tell the story of the natural world, our role as God's creational stewards, and the animal kingdom's hope for salvation through Jesus. From the very beginning, we learn of humanity's relationship with the earth. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The first man is taken from the ground. In Hebrew, man is Adam, and the ground is Adamah. Adam is thus named after the ground from which he is taken, Adam taken from Adamah. As we will see, this connection comes with incredible responsibility. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This phrase, to work it and keep it, comes from the Hebrew, but this is not the most literal translation. If we take it more literally, it says Adam's job is to serve it and protect it. First Adam is taken from the ground, and then he is given the job to serve and protect the other forms of life that emerge from the ground in the Garden of Eden. The other language used in humanity's creation also connects us to the natural world. God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is King Alfred the Great. Who he was and what he did are completely irrelevant for our purposes. He will simply serve as an analogy. Here are the images of King Alfred. Biblical scholars now widely believe the language of being made in God's image references the ancient practice of kings spreading their statues throughout their kingdoms. Whenever you encountered one of these statues, it served as a reminder of whose domain you were in, who was king in that particular territory. As living statues made in God's image, men and women are the extension of God's royal presence. To meet a human being is to be reminded that God is king over the world, since you have encountered one of his images within the world. And as the images of God, we are supposed to look like God, not in a physical way, but on a much deeper level. Like an angled mirror, a human being should reflect God's light into the creation. God's image bearers should remind the world of God's good and loving care for the world through our own good and loving care for the world. As his image bearers, humans were made to share in God's royal authority. This is why royal language is used when humans were told to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. But this doesn't mean we can rule over and exploit the animals in any way we choose, but rather as God's images, we have to facilitate his good intentions for the animal kingdom, like when God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. Thus so far, we found human beings were made from the ground, named after the ground, and given the responsibility to serve and protect the garden. Then we discover that we are to reign over the animal kingdom in a way that extends God's blessing to the animals. The story of humanity in the natural world is inextricably linked, and we have only considered the first two chapters of Genesis. Humans cannot be disentangled from the earth. We are its guardians and representatives. 
But if humanity and the earth are to experience the benefits of God and heaven, there must be a place where all of this can come together. In the Bible, God and humanity, and thus heaven and earth, find their meeting place in special agreements, which we call covenants. Covenants are generally established whenever God performs some salvific or beneficent act, and humanity responds by agreeing to become God's people, and upholding our side of the bargain so we can continue to be God's people and share in his benefits. In these arrangements, humanity acts as the earth's guardians and representatives. Whenever human beings honor the covenant, the earth and the animal kingdom prospers with us. Whenever we dishonor the covenant, the earth and the animals suffer with us. Again, we are inextricably linked, and this is never clearer than in instances of covenantal obedience and disobedience as they occur in scripture. Unfortunately, people are not very good at keeping these covenants, and the creation suffers as a result. We can illustrate this point with a few key examples. Whenever the first humans dishonor the covenant made in the Garden of Eden, they are told, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And whenever humanity sins against God by killing other human beings made in his image, God responds by destroying them with the earth, including its animal life. Remember, in biblical thought, humanity and animals will either succeed together or fail together. We are linked. And when Israel comes into the promised land, they are warned the Lord will make the rain of their land powder. From heaven, dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Israel serves as a key point of reference since they were chosen to be the light of the world. By looking at Israel's laws and way of life, the rest of the world should be able to get a sense of how God expects us to treat the earth. And Mosaic law has quite a lot to say about it. We will note only a few examples of Israel's creation care and how they sell the land, farm the land, and how they treat the animals. To begin with, the land does not truly belong to people. It belongs to God, and so certain rules were established for how the land could be bought and sold. God wanted to ensure the land was handled in a way that reflected his love and faithfulness to those who lived on the land. We begin with the Jubilee, a law which required land purchasers to return the land to its original owners every 50 years. This ensured that no family would go perpetually without their own land. The land shall not be permanently sold, for the land is mine, for you are foreigners and travelers with me, and in all the country you possess you shall allow a redemption of the land. To get a sense of how this works, let's imagine we have four Jewish families. In each of these families, owns a farm. But one year, there is no rain. A terrible drought means they will have no crops to eat or sell, and their situation will become pretty desperate. Along comes a rich man who buys these families' farms, leaving them landless. This is a situation that could eventually lead them into slavery. A few very rich would buy up all the land and prosper, and everyone else would become more poor and more miserable with no prospect for escape. But the Jubilee will not allow this to happen, because no one is allowed to buy the land permanently. Every 50 years, everyone who has lost their land gets it back and gets a fresh start.
With their farms returned to them, these Jewish families get to try again, and the rich are not permitted to lord over them by buying up all the land. The land belongs to Yahweh. For our next two examples, we will consider the law of the Shemitah, or the seventh year Sabbath. This law indicated the land was owed to rest every seven years. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. That year the land could not be sown, and whatever crops the fields produced of themselves could not be harvested and stored away into barns. One could only take from the fields what was required for their immediate needs. For the whole year, God's land was treated delicately. And how big of a deal was it to let the land rest every seven years? According to God, a big deal indeed. When the Jewish people were taken into Babylon as slaves for breaking the law of God, their sentence of 70 years was determined by their neglect of the land rest law. Quote, they became slaves until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. They had disregarded the land Sabbath year 70 times over a period of 490 years. Now the land would get the rest it was owed while they were in exile. The Sabbath year law was not just for the ground, but for the animals as well. Let the land rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do the same with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. During the Sabbath year, one could not wall off his fields or keep the animals away. On this year, animals had complete freedom to eat as much of the harvest as they wanted without human intervention. You could not even defend your own crops from animals in your territory. The problem with human beings deteriorating the natural world either through sinning against the covenant or direct mismanagement and abuse is it interferes with animal worship. In the Bible, everything worships its creator by functioning the way it was intended to function. Animals worship God simply by doing what they were made to do. For example, in Psalm 29, when deer give birth or strip the trees of foliage, they are compared to priests in the temple giving glory to God. Jackals and ostriches are said to glorify God just by quenching their thirst when they drink water. And when birds put their young in a nest, they are compared to worshippers laying a gift at the temple in Jerusalem. And many other examples could be added besides. The point is, the animal kingdom is worshipping God by doing what they were made to do. But when we threaten them or their environment, we cut off the praise God is supposed to receive from his animal creation. This is not just Israel's problem, it's everybody's problem. The book of Revelation warns that there is a time coming for God to destroy those who destroy the earth. It's okay to cut down trees to make lumber and paper, but it's not okay to wipe out entire ecosystems so that God's creatures don't have a place to live. And it's okay to have industry, but it's not okay to so poison the air that people can hardly breathe. And it's difficult to imagine any circumstances in which it would be okay to do something like this to God's creation. This raises the question, is there hope for creation? We can see that humanity is supposed to care for the creation, but has failed in so many ways. 
Does this mean the natural world is a goner, or is Jesus going to rescue the natural world from its plight, just as he has rescued us from our sins? There is hope for the natural world because of Jesus. As it turns out, rescuing the animal creation is part of the Messiah's job. Notice the order of events in Isaiah chapter 11. The Messiah is anointed with God's Spirit, and then the animals live at peace with each other, and live at peace with humans. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Mark's Gospel is extremely interesting in how it portrays Jesus fulfilling this prophecy. First, he is anointed with God's Spirit at the baptism, and then immediately he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The Messiah is the representative of all humankind. And before he goes to preach to other people, he must establish the proper relationship between humanity and the non-human creatures in God's economy. First, he must defeat Satan in temptation, just as all humans are called to do. Then he must be ministered to by angels, because the angels are supposed to be ministers to all humanity for the sake of our salvation. And in between these, it says he was with the wild animals. In Isaiah, the Messiah is anointed with God's Spirit, and then we get a scene of humans living with animals in peace. Jesus follows this exact pattern to show that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah's vision, and in the age to come, he will usher in a new natural order where all humans can live with the animals without mutual fear or retaliation. To understand this better, we need to take a look at how the Christian afterlife works in the Bible. This is a place where most Christians have a lot of confusion and misinformation. First, you have your natural life. When this ends, you will be introduced to your coffin. Then the afterlife will begin. In the Bible, the Christian afterlife is divided into two stages. The first stage will consist of being a disembodied soul in heaven. The Christian will remain in this state until the culmination of human history. It is important to understand this first stage is not the point of salvation. I repeat, dying and going to heaven is not the point of Christian salvation. The New Testament writers talk about this stage infrequently, in only short spurts, and with not near as much excitement as the second stage of the afterlife. But that doesn't mean dying and going to heaven never shows up in scripture. For example, in Philippians, Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Here he is clearly looking forward to the first stage, that of dying and going to heaven. Another very telling vision occurs in Revelation 6 when John sees the souls of the martyrs standing under the altar in heaven. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. What's so unexpected about this is even though they are Christian souls who have gone to heaven, they have not been fully rewarded yet, and they are not completely happy. They cry out, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This language of how long comes from the lament psalms of the Old Testament. When the psalmist was engulfed with grief or anger over injustice, he would cry out, How long until you do something about this? How long will you put up with this injustice? 
Even though these spirits are in heaven, they are still lamenting and crying out. They are waiting for full restitution at the second stage of the afterlife. The second stage begins at the end of normal human history with the second coming of Christ. At this point, disembodied souls in heaven will transition to being re-embodied in the new heaven and the new earth. This stage of the afterlife is discussed by the New Testament writers more frequently, at greater length, and with a lot more excitement than the first stage of the afterlife. We will have physical bodies fashioned in the likeness of Jesus' resurrection body, immune to aging and decay, and equipped with extraordinary abilities. And notice, the earth will be there in eternity. We won't be in heaven away from the earth, but instead heaven and earth will be brought together. Let's look at some New Testament passages to see how this works. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Notice the final scene of salvation in the Bible is not us going to heaven, but the heavenly city coming down to us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with humanity. Again, we don't leave to go to God's dwelling place. He comes down, rather, and makes his dwelling with humanity on the renewed earth. So earth definitely has a place in eternity. You're not just pilgrims passing through. You might be wondering why the heavenly city is shaped like a cube. There are basically two reasons for this. The first reason has to do with mathematics. I can't get into the math right now, but if you're curious about this, check out the video link in the description where I deal with it at length. The second reason has to do with the temple in Jerusalem. Once a year, God would meet with the high priest in the back room called the Holy of Holies. This room was shaped like a perfect cube. By portraying the heavenly city as a perfect cube, the Bible is letting us know just as God met on the earth with one man once a year in a cube-shaped room, so God will grant all men and women in Christ full access to him all the time in this cube-shaped city. This business of bringing heaven down to earth is not just for the afterlife, by the way. This is actually central to the way Jesus sees his kingdom in the here and now. Jesus' most famous sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount, where he identifies actions like loving your enemies and being generous without expecting anything in return as expressions of his kingdom rule. The Sermon on the Mount exhibits a remarkable structure. It can be divided into two equal halves. Right in the middle is the Lord's Prayer. This is not an accident. The whole sermon is hanging on the Lord's Prayer, which in turn perfectly embodies the contents of the Sermon on the Mount. But the Lord's Prayer can also be split into two halves. And we find at the center of the prayer, and therefore at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, is a line about heaven coming to earth in the here and now. Let's take a quick look at the prayer to see how this works. The prayer operates chiastically. The first and last lines go together. Our Father in heaven, from the first line, is held in contrast with the evil one who leads into temptation in the last line. Hallowed be your name is lined up with forgiving our debtors because we hollow God's name by forgiving our debtors. 
your kingdom come is lined up with give us this day our daily bread, because as the prophets reminded us, when God's kingdom arrives, everyone will have enough to eat. We show the arrival of God's kingdom by making sure no one goes hungry. And at the middle of it all, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thus we find when we live and love and hope and give and forgive as Jesus did, we are showing the world a glimpse of eternity. We are facilitating the arrival of God's kingdom on earth as in heaven, as a picture of what it will be like when heaven and earth are finally brought together for good in the age to come. To be sure, when we look at the cruelty and unfairness of the natural world, it can be hard to see the loving God through his creation. Some have used this as an excuse to not believe, suggesting that God would not make a world like this. In Romans chapter 8, Paul addresses the principle of pain and decay that pervades the universe. He says, Creation itself is waiting with eager expectation for the moment when God's children will be revealed. Creation, you see, was subjected to pointless futility in hope that creation itself would be freed from its slavery to decay. To enjoy the freedom that comes when God's children are glorified, for we know that the entire creation is groaning together and suffering labor pains together up until the present time. Paul does not conceive of the ultimate salvation to be found in Jesus as only for human beings who believe in Jesus. He sees the salvific benefits of Christ as extending to the natural creation. And notice he says creation will enjoy the freedom that comes when God's children are glorified. What's that all about? It's God taking us back to where we were in the beginning. God has not jettisoned his original plan that wise image bearers would steward and manage the world. Indeed, Jesus died to get the original plan back on track, and the creation is looking forward to us appearing with Jesus so that it can be redeemed and finally be stewarded with the wisdom and goodness and justice for which it was always intended. In our final passage on creation renewal, we consider an enigmatic and much debated passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is explaining that Jesus is reigning from heaven at the right hand of the Father in the present age, and he is describing what is actually taking place in this present reign and where it's heading. Quote, when all things are put in order under the Son, then the Son himself will also be put in order under him who put all things under the Son, that God may be all in all. The goal or destination toward which God's program is heading is that God may be all in all. This can also be translated so that God may be all things in all things. Obviously, all things would indicate all things, that is, everything in the universe. As you can imagine, this has raised a number of interpretive questions. The most obvious of which is this pantheism. In a pantheistic conception, God and the universe are no longer distinct. Rather, God and the universe become one and the same thing. This is what some have thought Paul was talking about when he said God would be all in all. And some have hoped rather excitedly that this would open Christianity up to a conversation with Eastern mysticism, such as the Brahman in Hinduism. In that way of thinking, Brahman is the ultimate reality. Everything in creation, including your own individual consciousness, is an extension of the Brahman. Everything and everyone shares in the life of the deity. Is this the sort of thing that Paul is talking about? Not exactly. 
While Paul certainly is speaking in hope of a much stronger connection between the universe and the divine than what most Christians today would be comfortable with, he is not a pantheist. To begin with, pantheists believe that God and the creation have this perfect union now. Notice Paul believes this will only happen later, after the arrival of Jesus from heaven. And he doesn't look at the universe in its present state as an adequate condition for union with the divine. He taught in the immediate verses prior that Christ must put all things in order and must purge creation of malicious elements before proceeding on to the next stage. In verse 24, he says, Jesus must destroy every rule and authority and power. The Greek words used here reference two spheres. First, the realm of human government where politicians like to stomp around in God's world as if they own the place. And also the satanic realm lurking in the shadows of these temporary national governments. He says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In verse 25, all of these are identified as enemies who must be destroyed in order for the creation to be ready to house its creator. Finally, pantheism says God will simply be everything. First Corinthians says God will be in everything, that he will be all in all. The reason Christ must reign and eliminate unsavory features of the cosmos is because when God is all in all, he will reinforce the structures of the universe, breathing life into its materials and phenomena. He would not want to strengthen the satanic powers or the human governments or the reign of death. They must go so that only the best parts of the cosmos remain for revitalization. We might think of all in all like this. God is the source of life, wonder, and glory. The universe retains enough glory to point to its creator, but it is dim due to death and sin. But when God is all in all, he will so fill and pervade the universe that one will not be able to have a serious exchange with the universe without having a serious exchange with God himself. While he will not simply become the universe, he will so reinforce its fundamental structure and functionality that creation will finally experience the glory for which it was always intended. To conclude, we must ask the question, what is the role of Jesus' people in all of this? To answer this question, we must consider the two names most frequently given to Jesus' followers in the New Testament. The first comes from Athens. Athens was the birthplace of an ancient form of democracy. Select citizens of this state would gather here at the Nix and make decisions to determine the course of their nation. This group was called Ecclesia, from which we derive our English word church. Thus, by building a church, Jesus does not think of himself as creating a new religion, but rather he considers himself to be forging a law-making body or government. The other title used for the church is on a much more cosmic scale, Hahagioi, sometimes translated literally as the holy ones, but usually translated as the saints. In the Old Testament, this refers to a council of beings in the unseen realm through which God governs the universe. In other places, they are associated with the power to execute God's divine judgment, and they determine the course of nations, even diminishing the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar to a state of insanity. When the New Testament calls us the holy ones or the saints, they are not referring to moral conduct primarily, but instead they are forecasting our destiny to be a part of this divine council through which God runs the universe. This is why Paul can ask the Christians at Corinth, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? 
We find then that both of the primary names given to the church have to do with government. One day, God will come and fill and pervade his creation so that it comes into its maximum glory and functionality. This God-filled creation will be entrusted to the church as a cosmic government who will manage it in a way that brings honor to the God who made it. This story of awesome responsibility and opportunity is the reason for which the church was made, and it is what we are referring to when we say eternal life.